Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called A Startling Announcement to a Girl from Nazareth. It's a guest essay by Ron Hansen. Among Ron's many honors are a Guggenheim Foundation grant, an award in literature from the American Academy and National Institute of Arts and Letters, two grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, and a three-year fellowship from the Lindhurst Foundation. Novelist Ron Hansen is currently the Gerard Manley Hopkins Professor in the Arts and Humanities at Santa Clara University, where he earned an MA in Spirituality in 1995. Ron's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 21, 2008, the fourth Sunday in Advent. Each day at noon, the bell of Holy Angels Catholic Church slowly gonged, and if we schoolchildren weren't at lunch or recess, we were instructed to stand and recite the Angelus. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, our teacher would say. Our memorized response was, and she conceived of the Holy Ghost which was followed by the prayer called the Hail Mary. At the next gong, the teacher recited, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. And we said, Be it done unto me according to thy word. Another Hail Mary, another gong, and then the final petition, The word was made flesh, to which we added, And dwelt among us. Some fifty years later, I still recite the Angelus when I hear a church's noontime bell. And that recitation is a regular reminder of the crucial importance of the announcement and acceptance in our gospel passage from Luke this week. Readers will recall that earlier, in Luke 1, 5-25, the evangelist presented a narrative of the childless couple Zechariah and Elizabeth. Like Sarah in the book of Genesis, Elizabeth is shamed in that culture for not having offspring. But she is old now and increasingly hopeless. But when Zechariah, a righteous priest, is offering incense in the holy place of the temple tabernacle, a messenger of the Lord named Gabriel greets him with the announcement that his prayer has been heard and his wife will give birth to a son named John, who will become a great prophet like Elijah. Six months after Elizabeth became pregnant, the same messenger greets not not a wistful elderly father, but a surprised girl. She was probably no more than 14, is not characterized as righteous in her religious observances, and is not visited in holy surroundings in the metropolis of Jerusalem, but in presumably humble circumstances in an insignificant northern village called Nazareth. But Gabriel tells Mary she has found favor with God, that she will conceive a son and name him Jesus, and that he will rule a dynasty, fulfilling all the ancient expectations for a Jewish Messiah. I find Mary's follow-up question rather confusing in human terms, since we've been told she has a fiancé named Joseph. She, She asks how she, a virgin, could possibly conceive a child. 
Wouldn't such a bride-to-be in those times presume that she could become pregnant after her marriage is consummated, and that the angel was foretelling that not-too-far-off event? But Mary seems to have intuited something more immediate, and she's right. For Gabriel is foretelling a miracle. In Luke's poetic and elusive phrasing, the messenger says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in case she doubted his veracity, he offers as proof Elizabeth, Mary's kinswoman in Jerusalem, who was pregnant in her old age, for nothing will be impossible for God. Though it isn't clear from their dialogue, a choice seems to have been presented to the girl, and she accepts the responsibility of the child with perfect acquiescence. Complimenting Gabriel's, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. With her own words, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In the musical comedy, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, David Yazbek composed a lovely waltz of a ballad, which included the following lyrics. Look at the way the moon behaves. Look at the way she paints a silver ribbon on the waves. One thing I've learned, and I'll share with you, nothing is too wonderful to be true. Since the first century after Luke's gospel was written, skeptics have found the virginal conception too wonderful to be true, and it remains a source of extreme contention even now. Some note the miraculous circumstances surrounding the births of illustrious people were a convention of Hellenistic literature, with which Luke was familiar. Some read the gospel passage from Luke as merely metaphorical, that the infant Jesus was the product of natural sexual intercourse between Joseph and Mary, and that act of love was exquisitely and uniquely blessed by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but Matthew's Gospel, which provides the only other infancy narrative, opts for a mir miraculous interpretation similar to Luke's. This one, from the prospective husband's point of view, as Joseph is told in a dream, Quote, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. End quote. In the apocryphal text Proto-Evangelum of James, from about the year 150, contributes an account of how Mary herself was gifted to Joachim and Anna, just as John the Baptist was gifted to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In gratitude, Anna presented the child to the temple at the age of three. And though Mary later married an elder named Joseph, the infancy gospel of James maintains her virginity was perpetual. In her book, Alone of All Her Sex, The Myth and the Cult of the Virgin Mary, Marina Warner notes the swift evolution of perspectives on the mother of Jesus as she shifts from being an unnamed person whom the evangelist Mark and the Pauline letters seem either indifferent to or unacquainted with, to being esteemed in Luke and John in the patristic tradition as the first disciple, the ideal Christian, the new Eve, 
the personification of Israel and the iconic symbol of the church itself. We have no way of knowing now if Mary's elevation to the highest degree of holiness is the consequence of fresh factual information unavailable to the earlier New Testament writers, or the result of insight, inspiration, deepening piety, or a yearning for a feminine face of God. And it seems to me not to matter. The French philosopher Paul Ricoeur argued for what he called a quote-unquote second naivete. The first naivete occurs when we project our own constructs and fancies into a literary text, and he argued that we should be suspicious of that impulse. But Ricoeur secondly cautioned that we also have to forget theologizing and critiquing adopting an almost childish innocence in order to make ourselves available to a text's scenes and symbols so that, so that they can have their intended effect on us. Each of the evangelists, after all, was writing for the head, for the heart, not the head. Each was trying in his gospel to communicate overwhelming, world-changing feelings of awe, reverence, gratitude, and continuing need for Christ, who taught us the value of holy obedience and submission to love. We see the source of that willingness and vulnerability in the girl from Nazareth in the scene of Annunciation. Nothing is too wonderful to be true. And now for further reflection. How have you understood Mary's place in the Gospels. What might we gain from the particular emphases of the Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant traditions about Mary? And finally, for further reading, see the book by Yaroslav Pelikan, Mary Through the Centuries, Her Place in the History of Culture. A guest essay by novelist Ron Hansen of Santa Clara University. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Marilyn Robinson. The title, Home, New York, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, 2008, 325 pages. In her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Gilead, named the number one fiction book of 2004 by the New York Times, Marilyn Robinson told the story of Pastor John Ames, who was a fourth-generation Congregationalist pastor in Gilead, Gilead, Iowa. More exactly, she allowed Pastor Ames to tell his own story, for the book is a 240-page letter from the 76-year-old Ames to his 7-year-old son. In the letter, Pastor Ames looks inwardly to untangle how his, un- how his present reality in his old and feeble years relates to whatever constitutes ultimate reality. Parts of those letter also fret about, quote, the beloved child of my oldest and dearest friend. That would be Jack Bolton, son of Gilead's Presbyterian pastor, Robert Bolton, who was named after Ames himself. 
In this new book, A Parallel But Independent Story, Holm takes us back to Gilead in the 1950s. Glory, age 38 and the youngest of the eight Boaten children, has left her teaching job in Des Moines and returned to Gilead to care for her aged and feeble father, Robert. She's deeply lonely and has never married, although we learn she does have a romantic past. As a good pastor's kid, she still reads her Bible, and since Robert is a widower, Glory takes charge of all things domestic. Without explanation, the black sheep of the family, Jack, returns home after a 20-year absence. Jack is 43, an alcoholic, a thief who has spent time in prison, a miscreant who fathered a child out of wedlock, and, worst of all, for his loving father, a decided non-believer. But as a pastor's kid, John knows the scriptures better than most. He plays hymns for his father, and he has a broken heart for an unlikely woman who did him nothing but good. He's come home seeking reconciliation, but that is easier said than done. The Bible's parable of the prodigal son is far neater than this family's story. It's a powerful thing, family, says the father Robert. Indeed it is, especially when your family is a pastor's family, brimming with Presbyterian probity and earnestness. (coughs) A family that is good in order to look good. Such a wonderful family they were, exclaims Glory. But there are no villains in this story. Father Robert is tired, sad, and tirelessly tender. He falls asleep at dinner, succumbs to dementia, and is vexed at how and why Jack arrived at his sorry state. Glory is the peacekeeper who moves between accepting people, trying to fix them, and enabling them. Jack, the prodigal, is irony personified. These are lovable characters. They have secrets that define them, roles that have been assigned to them for decades, memories both pleasant and painful, all come together in a house full of family ghosts. This life on earth is a strange business, says Glory. And so she prays at dinner what we all hope and pray. Dear God in heaven, please help us. Dear God, please help everyone we love. Amen. The new novel by Marilyn Robinson, the title, Home. For film this week, I review a movie from El Salvador. The title is Innocent Voices, from the year 2004. We here are all scared of turning 12, explains Chava, because that's when the army takes you. I have one year left. 
Innocent Voices takes place in El Salvador's civil war that raged from 1980 to 1992. But it could have been set in any of the dozens of countries around the world where governments and so-called liberation armies recruit children soldiers. In El Salvador, the authoritarian government, with a billion dollars of aid and training from the United States, forcibly conscripted young boys to fight its civil war against the FMLN. As one woman notes in the movie, they're training our soldiers to kill us. Since Chava's father left for the U.S., the 11-year-old is now the man of the house. The film <coughs> revolves around the plight of his extended family. Chava follows his uncle Beto and sides with the rebels, but his mother Kella observes that they too conscript their kids. Innocent Voices reinforces the truth that in all modern wars, the biggest losers by far are the innocent civilians. Co-writer Oscar Orlando Torres based this award-winning film on his own memoirs. In Spanish, with English subtitles. Innocent Voices from the year 2004 from El Salvador. And finally, for the last Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by the poet Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. The title of Levertov's poem is On the Mystery of the Incarnation. <clears throat> it's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, God, out of his compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the Word. On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 21, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.